with so much violence and hate in the world, God, why don't you just stop it? Don't you even see all the pain and crap happening in the world? Even in the church. You say you love us, but why do you let bad things happen to good people? Why are kids molested? Aren't you watching what's going on? Heavy questions. Heavy questions. We're starting this series. Dealing with heavy questions. Well, by the way, my name is Greg Boyd. I'm one of the pastors here. I'll be delivering this message this morning. Um, and we're entitling this whole series, Crap Happens, which is why, I don't know if it was clear during the messages but, or during the announcements, but that's why they're called Crap Groups, uh, because they're going to be focused on this series, Crap Happens. And uh, we'll be diving into a, a lot of crap. I'm thinking that if you're visiting for the first time, you, I mean, first we have the crab groups, crap happens, and then we have a toiletry ministry. You've got to be thinking this is one of the most constipated churches in America. It's, it's like, got serious issues. I mean, next we'll be serving X-Lax for communion and drinking prune juice. It's like, but it's not about that. We're, we're dealing with heavy issues that uh, can only be described as, as crap. Um, Every one of the messages in the series will be entitled Something Happens, and it's a kind of a, some version of Crap Happens. So today's message is going to be called Suffering Happens. And uh, a passage I'd like to just read at the start that we'll be getting to later on, but it sort of primes the pump, gets you thinking along, the, asking the right questions. It comes from Romans chapter 10, verse 21, which is really quoting the book of Isaiah where the Lord says, all day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. And in that simple verse, what we have here is God has outstretched arms towards his people and uh, wants them to come to him, wants them to submit to him, wants to have a relationship with him, and they won't do it. And the question it raises, it's a really, really important question. If you're going to understand how the world can be as crappy as it sometimes is. The important question is, how could an all-powerful God get himself in that position? Where he's frustrated, he's angry, he's disappointed, he's trying to do something that is not getting done. How could an all-powerful God get himself in that position? Crap happens. Let's say a little word about the title. Um, yes, it is junior highest, it's immature, that's why we chose it. It's, it's, uh, it, it, it's a playoff of the famous bumper sticker. That's another version of crap happens. You know the bumper sticker. Uh, in various ways, it says manure happens, uh, excrement occurs, fecal matter transpires. That bumper sticker, you know what I'm talking about. But we didn't want to use that word, the actual word. We're Christians for crying out loud. And we're matures. We don't want to use that word. But we did want to use some word that is uh, a little bit edgy, uh, a little bit almost inappropriate. Maybe some of you are thinking, you know, it is totally inappropriate. But you see, here's the thing. We're going to be talking about stuff that, that has a level of anger, a level of anxiety, a level of pain that goes beyond, ah, shucks, or rats, doggone it. Uh, no, it's in a different category than that. It's, and, and there's no polite word that can capture it. It's crap. Uh, it, it, it's, you know, it's a little bit like if you've ever watched some Christianized movies, uh, like say a gangster movie and they take out the bad words and they put in shucks, darn it. And like, by golly, I'll shoot ya. I, you know, no, that's not the way they talk. And, and it's just, there's something artificial about that. 
Well, if you're talking about something like what happened in Japan, what's happening in Japan, pray for Japan. Uh, in fact, pray for everybody because what's happening at that nuclear plant is scary. We, uh, you know, th- that, that goes beyond shucks, doggone it. No, 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 this is catastrophic. We're talking about the kind of stuff where it has a level of anxiety or pain or catastrophe. It, 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 it's sometimes close to nightmares, if not all the way into nightmares. It's the kind of thing that makes you go, Arr! We could just title the series, Arr! happens. But wouldn't communicate quite as well, I suppose. Uh, and it's not just global crap. We're talking about stuff in our life. The personal stuff that happens. The pain that is there, I shared a couple of weeks ago about uh, my wife and I have uh, a son with, with disabilities, borderline autistic, and, and uh, he brings, he's a tremendous source of joy in our life, but there's a tremendous pain that is there because it sometimes seems like he's cruelly wired to just be so on the fence that he, he wants things he can't get, he wants to be a kind of person he can't be, and there's, there's this, this contradiction in him, and it's so painful and brings about such despair, which of course brings about pain in our life. And, and saying wrath just doesn't cover it. Shucks, doggone it. No, this is, this is nasty, raw stuff. And all of us, if we're honest, have stuff like this involved in our life. Now, we, we've talked about the problem of evil here at different times. If you've been here for a couple of years, you know that, that we weave that issue into a lot of our sermons. We tend to be rather theological around here. And we have a unique take on the problem of evil. Uh, and in fact, 12 years ago, we had a whole series on this. And you can, I think, get the series out in the gathering area in our bookstore, um, where, where we just really kind of dealt with that in a, in, a, in, a, in a thorough way. And there's some books that we've written on it, and et cetera, et cetera. This series will cover some of that. And so for new folks, you'll kind of get a perspective on the problem of evil, which is the problem of reconciling an all-powerful, all-good God with this world that is messed up. Uh, and, and so you'll get some of that, our take on the problem of evil in this series. But for those who have heard that before, while some of it will be reviewed, there's a different angle that we're going to be taking as well. And the angle is that we're going to try to keep this not just theoretical and theological, but to have, a, have an angle on, on how it applies to our life. Application. How we personally wrestle through this stuff. So it's not just trying to understand why and how the world and maybe our life in any particular moment can be so crappy. That's an important question. But also, what do you do about it? How do you respond? What is a kingdom faithful way of responding to, to crap in our life? How, what is a way of growing through the crap in our life? And so we're going to keep an orientation on that. To keep that orientation, I want to do this. Right now, I want you to ask yourself and try to be honest with yourself. That's always the first and most fundamental task, to be honest. When I say the word crap or when I say pain, what comes to your mind in terms of your own life? Uh, you know, Japan's over there, but I'm talking about what really impacts you now. As you're sitting in this auditorium or listening through podcasts or watching it some other way, what comes to your mind? Think of one or two things. That is why I heard one person describe it as the suck factor. Uh, okay, what sucks about your life? If this wasn't here, your life would be a whole lot better. And, 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 and just grab hold of what comes to mind. Because I want that to be sort of a peg that you can hang this and all subsequent messages in this series on to keep it concrete. I want to talk about that problem. For some of us here, it might be a physical ailment uh, that goes way beyond, oh, shucks, doggone it. Uh, a friend of mine, uh, I found out yesterday, he's been battling uh, brain cancer for eight years and it's been remarkably successful at that. 
but had a, a, a CAT scan that came back a few days ago, and the, the, the tumor is back with a vengeance, and the news is very, very bad. Um, that would qualify as crap happens. He's got three kids, young guy. I, I, I uh, have shared about this neck issue that I got uh, with a degenerating uh, uh, vertebrae. Um, and that kind of thing where there's this kind of chronic pain, it could be chronic pain, it could be a terminal illness that you just found out you had. Uh, get a hold of that. That's the peg you want to hang this message and sub- subsequent messages on. But it might not be a physical thing at all. Maybe it's more of an emotional thing. Uh, maybe it's uh, depression that you deal with or, or anxiety that you're wrestling with. Maybe it's anxiety about your finances. That can be sort of like a chronic pain. It's always there. It chips away. It just doesn't allow you to completely relax if you're living in a constant wonder of how you're going to make ends meet, let alone where you might get your, your next meal. Um, it could be just a general anxiety. Sometimes people find that they all of a sudden their heart starts racing and they don't know why. There's an anxiety disorder there, a panic attack. Or there's a depression or a sense of hopelessness. Or maybe you lost your mojo a couple of years ago and you can't get it back. Life just sort of flattens out on you. That happens sometimes. That's what we're talking about here. Crap happens. Or maybe it's relational. Maybe uh, the marriage that failed. Or maybe it looks like it's going to fail. Or you lost your spouse, or you're estranged from your child, or you lost your child, or maybe you just feel profoundly alone and, and, and you can't seem to be able to connect with anybody. And I'm hoping that this table that we're uh, be putting on our website will, will help. But, but sometimes you just feel lonely, isolated. Maybe you can't connect with God. Maybe it's an ongoing sin issue or a habit that you've got that just seems to tear you down. Whatever it is, get it in mind right now. And I, I, I want you to hang, use that as sort of a reference point for this whole series, to keep it concrete and practical as we go through this. Um, that is what we mean by crap happens, and it looks a little bit different for each one of us. It's important that you don't minimize it, whatever that issue is. Um, there are some folks who maximize every issue they have, right? If, if they've got a stubbed toe, the world knows about it. And they sulk a lot and whatever. So if that's you, then what I'm going to say right now doesn't apply to you. But there's others of us who do the opposite. We minimize everything. I'm guilty of this. When, when, when something bad happens, when crap happens, I immediately go into a sort of a minimization mode where I try to convince myself I'm above it. This is not really a big deal. Some of you have the same kind of issue. It drives my wife crazy. Um, so when I, I got this diagnosis, this MRI about my neck, uh, I was hoping it was a slip disc or a pinched nerve. It turns out to be degeneration, and we're looking at all sorts of options to, to address it. But it means I got there's no easy fix on this thing, and I immediately minimize it. I zoom out. I look at the big picture. I think of the, the, the problems that are there in the world, and, and I, I say to myself, I, I, I can't complain or moan about this. Okay, I don't have good neck motion, and I got you know ongoing pain there, and maybe it'll get fixed, but maybe it won't. But even if it doesn't. There are people who, who, who can't even move their arms and legs. There are children who are starving to death. There are kids, many people haven't even lived to be my age. I can't complain. And, and by global standards, this is a, a rather small problem. And I got Jesus and Jesus can get me through anything. With, with God, all things are possible. And so that's great self-talk, isn't it? And there's a legitimate role for that. And it's good to keep a perspective on things and don't become all sulky and moany and, and, and feeling sorry for yourself. That's good. But at the same time, if I'm honest, and that's always the most important requirement, if I'm honest, some of what's going in my head as I'm talking to myself like that is it helps me feel righteous. 
Some of what's going on in my head is I got a cheerleader in there who's saying, Greg, oh, you're, you're bigger than this. This is nothing to you. Maybe other people would get down about this, but not you, because you know the Lord and you have a global perspective on things. And so this is really no big deal. And if I'm not careful, what can happen is that that cheerleading becomes sort of a, a surrogate for dealing with the real issue. I want to be a person who conquers this, and I'm going to be. I, I'm going to, whatever happens here, I'm not going to become a negative curmudgeon person, a complaining person, even if it's always ongoing. I, it will not defeat me. But to get there, I've got to be real with, with the fact that, that this pisses me off. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's another little indecorate word. It is irritating. I, I turn my head, and it's like a, a pin or a knife that goes in there, and, and it's been that way for three months, and it, it's like when you hit your, it hits your head on the cabinet door. You ever do that? You turn and hit. It just makes you mad. You ever do it? You just want to slam the thing? Because it catches you off guard. It's like, oh! It takes you about a minute to get resaved. You just want to like, bust it, you know? It's so aggravating. Well, that's how this is. It's there. And so I'm going along fine. Someone honks the horn like, Ah! And it makes you mad. And, and it, that's the reality of the situation. By global standards, yeah, you know, it doesn't really rate that high. But this is my issue, and it's ticking me off. And so it doesn't matter the fact that it doesn't rate on some global scale. The reality is that this is what I've got. And the reality is that you've got what you've got. And the reality is we've got to deal with that. In order to grow to be the kind of people who handle the crap uh, well and, and in a kingdom way, we've got to be honest with the fact that it hurts. It hurts to be able to say that out loud and to wrestle with that. It's a little bit like uh, in that faith and doubt series that we just got out of. Uh, I, I tried to model this last week. When we go to the Bible, it's okay to wrestle out loud with the text. It's okay to be bothered by passages. I think sometimes they're supposed to bother us. It's okay to say out loud, this confuses me or this aggravates me or this doesn't make any sense. And we've got to give ourselves permission to wrestle with God on that. So also... When it comes to life events, we've got to be okay saying this really irritates me or frustrates me or makes me depressed or despondent. And and we don't want to sulk. No, no, no. But there's got to be times where you give yourself permission just to be real with it in order to grow past it and go beyond it. So get in your mind the one or the two issues that you're going to be focused on here throughout this series. What does crap look like in your particular life, whether it's emotional, physical or spiritual and having that in mind and giving yourself permission to feel it and be bothered by it, then ask this question, why? Why is it there? The question that we asked, uh, uh, oh, hello there, Charlie. I wonder what you're doing up here. I got a clue. I'm getting a word of knowledge from Charlie. You know what it is? I forgot to mention the questions. Okay, listen. Throughout this series, we're going to be doing something. That, that was very discreet, Charlie. You did that very well. Because I don't look at the monitors. They're telling me on the monitors, Greg, don't forget the questions. But do I look at the monitors? No. Why? Because I have ADD. All right. And then one more crap happens. So we're going to be having questions at the end of this message. And throughout this series, we're going to be having questions. Hello. Mary's back there dancing. I thought you were having a spaz attack or something. Or maybe just a spontaneous choreographed dancing or something. She's back there going like this. Like, what a weird place to exercise. Knock it off. So the number, okay, you can text your questions in, but you've got to start now because they're going to be collecting these, and then they'll ask me them at the end of the message, depending on how much time we have, which at this rate is not going very well. But the number is 651-321-3030. That's 651-321-3030. Supplies a limited call now, Visa and MasterCard accepted. And if you want to, if you don't have a text thing, and by the way, when you turn your phone on to text, 
don't turn the sound back on. <laughs> and then if you want to just write out a, a question, uh, you can go back to the, at the back of the church and someone will collect those and they'll get up that way. And the ones that we can't get to, we'll put on uh, the website uh, on the table uh, where we're going to have all sorts of dialogue stuff going on and you can dialogue through it that way. All right, so texting your questions. And the number is in the bulletin uh, if you forget it as I'm going through here. So the, the question is why? God loves us, right? God wants the best for us. Why doesn't he take this away? And what really makes that an interesting question is that we say in the Christian tradition, and it's biblical, that he is all-powerful. All-powerful. And if God's all-powerful, it would seem to indicate, follow me here now, that he can do anything he wants. He's got all the power. So it would seem that he could take away the neck problem if he wanted to and take away my friend's brain, uh, my, my friend's brain cancer if he wanted to and stop that rape from happening if he wanted to and prevent the earthquake in Japan if he wanted to. He's all powerful. Which seems to indicate that if he didn't, doesn't heal my neck, it's because he doesn't want to. Uh, if he doesn't, he doesn't uh, heal the brain cancer because he doesn't want to. If he doesn't pre- prevent the rape, it's because he doesn't want to. If he doesn't save Japan, it's because he doesn't want to. Which would seem to indicate that he wants you to have the neck pain. He wants you to have the brain cancer. He wants you to get raped. And he wants the earthquake and tsunami to happen uh, out in Japan. He's all powerful, right? He can do anything he wants. And since he's all good, we confess that. It has to be that. It's good that you've got that neck pain. It's good that you have the brain cancer. It's good that you got raped. And it's good that Japan's going through what they're going through right now. Because everything God does is good. In fact, if everything he does is good, it actually gets worse now. Because you have to say that uh, if, if those things weren't in place, that the world would be less good. All the crap is here because God wants it to be here. Every single thing is part of his good plan. He's all powerful. If he doesn't stop it, it must be because he wants it. So now you've got to say that, that it, it's good that all, every rape that happened made the world a better place. It's somehow good. And, and, and every kid that ever got gassed in, in Auschwitz and ever got raped and mutilated and every person who drowned in a tsunami or every kid who was ever buried in a mudslide or anyone who ever got cancer or brain tumor or neck problems or you name it, it's all good. It's all good. In fact, if those things weren't there, the world would be less good. It'd be tragic if one less kid got raped than actually gets raped. It'd be sad if one less person died. And just the right amount of nightmares are going on. Because that's the amount that God allows. And so God must want it to be there. No more, no less. Just the right number of people breathe their last breath in a gas chamber. Just the right number of people are killed in wars. Just the right number die of AIDS. And so on and so on. It's all good. And now you've got to ask the question, are we talking about God or the devil? Because if God in any sense wills child kidnappings and mutilations and molestations and, and, and other nightmares, then what do you need a devil for? In fact, if God's already controlling all of that, there's really nothing left for the devil to do. Except maybe be a puppet on God's hand. And then he becomes sort of the fall guy. He gets blamed for it, even though he's just doing it to carry out God's will. Good luck figuring that one out. You can see why this is an important series, why this is an important question. The logic seems absolutely irrefutable. God's all-powerful. Now, now, now here, here's the thing. In asking any question about God, it's always important. And I say this a lot, but I can't ever say it too much. The most important question is to ask, where do you get your picture of God from? What is your authority? It all comes down to this. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you've got to, got to, got to get your picture of God from 
Jesus. He is the Word of God. Not like there's a lot of words. There's one Word of God, John 1, 1, and it's Jesus. He's the image of God, Colossians 1, 15. There's not a lot of images. There's one, is Jesus. He's the form of God, Philippians 2, 6. There's not a lot of forms of God. There's one, is Jesus. He's the one who says, uh, the Bible says of him, that he is the perfect, the singular, perfect expression of God's essence. Hebrews 1, 3. There's not a lot of that. There's only one. His name is Jesus. He's the one who says, if you see me, you see the Father. Why are you looking any other place for the Father? John 14, 7 through 9. He's the one who, who says no one knows the Father. Nobody knows the Father except the Son and to whoever the Son will reveal him. No one. Which means don't go any other place to find out what God is like other than the person of Jesus Christ. We've got to lock that in. God looks like Jesus. And so now you've got to ask yourself this question. In light of the conclusion we just came to uh, a minute ago, reasoning about God. You've got to ask the question, how many times did you see Jesus in any way favoring or being involved in child kidnappings and rapes and molestations? When you read the Gospels, do you see Jesus participating in that very much? How many people did he afflict with brain cancer? Not very many, I don't think. How many people did he jack up their necks? How many earthquakes did he cause? How many tsunamis did he cause? How many nuclear meltdowns was he involved in any of that? Did he ever favor wars? Was he in any sense willing any of that? No, you know what? You read the Gospels and, and you'll find if Jesus is our picture of God, he reveals a God who's not on that side of things. In fact, the God that Jesus reveals is doing the opposite. The God that Jesus reveals is the God who heals diseases. He doesn't cause them. He's a, he comes to liberate us. He doesn't put us into captivity. He, he comes to, to, to rejuvenate creation, not afflict creation. He's a God who's on, He comes that we might have life. And have it more abundantly. The devil comes to kill, steal, and destroy. That's why he's the enemy of God. Jesus comes, reveals who God is, because he comes to give life and give, more, give it more abundantly. He comes to restore, to set the captives free, to heal the sick, to heal the blind, to free us from the clutch of the enemy. That's the God that Jesus reveals. And if he's our, amen, and if he's our picture of God, if that's our, we lock that in, then any line of reasoning that led to a different conclusion must be wrong somewhere. You follow me here? We start with this omnipotent concept. We come to the conclusion that God's controlling everything and he, he wants the crap to be there. But that's not who we see revealed in Jesus. So somewhere we must have gone wrong. Somewhere we must have gone wrong. Now, where do we go wrong? Is it maybe that God's not omnipotent or not involved in, in not caring about the world? Uh, be careful about that one. Be very careful. Here's what can happen. Uh, I, sometimes folks, they, they come to the conclusion, I think rightly, that God doesn't control everything. He's not an omni-controlling God. Um, and they come to the conclusion that that would make God responsible for evil, and that can't be right. And they come to the conclusion that humans have free will and angels have free will, and what they choose affects what comes to pass. So they come to the conclusion that the world, a lot of what you see in this world does not reflect God's will, but reflects the wills of other beings, angels and humans. And so the world's a lot more ambiguous than they previously thought. And then what can happen is they can throw the baby out with the bathwater. Where they think, well, since God's not controlling things, he, has, he doesn't have much to do with anything. He's either not all-powerful or he's a distant God, not unconcerned, but he's not involved in our life very much. What really runs the world is a bunch of luck and free will and chance. Kind of like this movie I just saw the other day, which is a great movie, by the way, The Adjustment Bureau. Whoa, check that movie out. It's got some really good theology. But you get the impression, oh, it's just marvelous. I'm going to blog on it in a few days. But uh, you you get the impression that the chairman who represents God is like way far away. You can't really get to the chairman way up there. Now, the movie kind of redeems itself a little bit later on. But through most of the movie, you have all these agents running things, trying to keep things in check and whatever. And the chairman is really distant. And a lot of people have a picture of God. 
Oh yeah, there's all these free wills, all these variables, you know, things that come to pass, but God is way far away. Because what happens is for a lot of people, their sense of intimacy and closeness with God is wrapped up in their, their belief that God controls everything. And so when they throw out the language of God controlling everything, they throw out the language of God being close. For some people, you feel God, you're special because you really believe that God found you that parking space. And that your plane was the one plane that didn't get delayed. And, and, and you really believe that it was God that, 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 uh, that, that gave you the promotion or the God that got you fired. you know. And, and, and it was God. When your basketball team loses, well, well that's because God willed it to lose. So don't get too mad at the rough. Yeah, it was a bad call, but God's got a plan. It's, everything's part of the plan. And you're at the center of the plan. And you feel close to God. And then you come to the conclusion that maybe it's not that simple and there's other wills that affect what goes on. And what can happen is now you feel kind of alone down here in this... This, this, this world where, where, where chance and free will runs the day. And, and some people don't, start to lose confidence in, in, in even the power of prayer. Here, here's the thing. You've got you to be careful about this. Uh, not to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Our small group, the people I share life with, have been talking about this. How do you hold on to a Christ-like character, knowing that God looks like this, while also believing that God is all-powerful? Is the problem in believing that God is all-powerful are all-powerful, or is the issue that we're not thinking of power in a Christ-like way? See, I believe that God is all-powerful to the core of my being. I believe God is all-powerful. Jesus uh, teaches that. Jesus models that. The whole Bible teaches that. God is all-powerful. But here's the question. What do you mean by power? We often think of, in fact, usually I think, think that power means control. Because that's the kind of power we fallen human beings would like to have. So we think, if we say God is all-powerful, we tend to think that means that God is all-controlling. But if Jesus is our model of God, why would we think that? Maybe we've got to think about power in different ways. Look, at, there's at least four kinds of power I can think of. On the one hand, you've got, let's call it Neanderthal power. This is the power of Neanderthal man, the caveman power. This is brute force power. This is the, 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 the stereotypical picture of the caveman who's got the woman dragging her by the hair with a billy club. You know, me want woman, me get woman, me pawn woman on head, and now I got woman. It, it, we're talking sheer brainless testosterone power, the power to conquer, the power to get your way because you can. And this is frankly the power that kind of runs things in this fallen world. This is the way nations operate. You know, it's about brute force, right? I think this is what everyone kind of craves. I, I, I want to get the power so I can impose my will on others. It's Neanderthal power, the power of brute strength. That is power to control. Then there's another kind of power to control, which is a little bit more sophisticated. We could call this Machiavellian power. Machiavelli was a philosopher in the 16th century who wrote this book, book called The Prince. And, and he, he, here he gives advice to political leaders on how to control people without them knowing it. Brilliant. The great leader is one who just takes the stupid people, the masses, and kind of controls them, but makes them think that they're actually making their own decisions. It's brilliant. Some would argue that that philosophy is still very much prevalent today. But see, it's still a, a, a power to control. It's just a little bit more sophisticated than Neanderthal power. But there's other kinds of power, like, for example, wisdom power. This is the power of someone who's just got good ideas or got insights into things. And when there's a problem, they say, maybe this, or what about this, or look at it this way. And people tend to go, yeah. And so they follow the person, not because they're controlling them, but because they've got wisdom. Their, their ideas have a, have a drawing power. So there's wisdom power, Neanderthal power, Machiavellian power, wisdom power. And then there is, I would call it agape power. And this is the power 
not to control, but the power to win allegiance by service. This is, this is the influence you have by loving somebody, by caring about them, by serving them, by ascribing worth to them, by sacrificing for them, and you win their hearts. Agape. It's a, it's a Greek word for other-oriented love. It's the power of love, and I would argue it's the strongest power in the universe. So we've got four kinds of power. Now the question is, when we say God is all-powerful, what are we talking about? What kind of power are we talking about? And I ask the question, well, what, what, what kind of power is most appropriate to God? Which leads to the question, what kind of power do we see Jesus modeling in his ministry? Because all of our thinking about God is to be centered on Jesus. When I read the Gospels, I see a little bit of Neanderthal power. For example, when Jesus casts out demons, he doesn't do a politely, get out! And I get out. So yeah, there's some Neanderthal power, but that's not the way he relates to humans very much. Uh, I, I don't see any Machiavellian power. I, I don't see him manipulating anybody. Uh, I do see a lot of wisdom power. Uh, Jesus manifests wisdom all over the place. In fact, his entire life is, an, is a manifestation of God's wisdom, who's using the crucifixion to outsmart his spiritual enemies. Wisdom all over the place. And of course, we see agape love power, the power of the cross. Uh, as as the, God is the heavenly groom who comes down to get his bride. And he doesn't do it in the Neanderthal way where he clubs us and says, now you're mine. He doesn't do it in a manipulative way where he kind of secretly controls us without our knowing it. He does do it in a wisdom way, and he certainly does it in an agape way, when he gives his life for us on the cross. That's the kind of power that we're talking about. It, it's wisdom power, it's love power, it's not the power to control, it's the power to influence, you see? The power to be present as an influence in life. God could, if he wanted to, Neanderthal everything. He could have created a world where he's just the controller, or the Machiavelli ruler, he just manipulates everything. But I submit to you that that would be beneath God. Leaders use Neanderthal power and Machiavellian power when they don't trust their own wisdom and they don't trust their own character. That's when you resort to the more primitive kinds of control. Uh, but God is above that. And if God is looking for a world that's capable of love and God's looking for a world where there's, there, there's free choice and moral significance and, 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 and the capacity of people to choose to enter into a relationship or not, well, then the kind of power you use to do that is not control power, but influence power. Because the reality is, and maybe men listen up on this, you cannot Neanderthal your way into a loving relationship. You can't do it. You can't Machiavelli your way into a loving relationship. You can use wisdom on your way into a loving relationship, and you must use agape love in your way to a loving relationship. So if relationship is what God wants, wisdom and love are the primary ways that he does it. This is the God who's revealed in Jesus Christ. This is, I submit to you, the God that's revealed throughout the Bible. Sometimes God uses Neanderthal power. He, has a, he can do that. He just decides something's going to happen. Yeah, sometimes. But not all the time. We find throughout the Bible, his wisdom is praised. And we find throughout the Bible, his character is praised. And if God was Neanderthaling everything, controlling everything, he wouldn't need any wisdom. You don't need wisdom if you're controlling it. Uh, you don't need wisdom if, if you're a Machiavellian leader. You just control stuff. No, you need wisdom when you're dealing with a, a creation full of free agents who make decisions. And you need love, agape love, when you're dealing with a creation full of free agents. Now see, if we have this understanding of divine power... The question is, then, what does that mean in terms of how we understand crap in our life and how we understand uh, what we're supposed to do in response to it? You can now begin to make sense of a passage we read earlier in Romans 10. All day long I've stretched out my hands to this disobedient people. Uh, how could an all-powerful God be in a position like this? Well, because the kind of power we're talking about is not Neanderthal power or Machiavellian power. A God who used that would never be a frustrated God. 
never have his will thwarted. But a God who's relying on wisdom and agape love can. And so God puts himself in a position where he actually experiences frustration sometimes and a, and a broken heart sometimes. And that totally reframes the way we ask questions when we're dealing with crap in our life. It means this. And, and, and I'll, I'll close with this and then we're going to get to a few questions. It means this. That if God doesn't control everything, that means that, that as we're dealing with the crap, we don't need to think that God ordained that to be here. Uh, we can't just read God's will off of events that, that happen. No, it's... A lot of things cause events, including other free decisions. So we can't just look at the crap and say, well, God must will this. But we can and must look at the crap and say, but God is in it. God is in it, not in a Machiavellian or or Neanderthal way, but God is present in all the crap, in all the mess, in all the nightmares, present in a wisdom influence and present in a loving influence. God's influence, he, does, he controls very little, but his influence is everywhere. In fact, when you believe that there are other free agents, angelic and human beings, who, who affect what comes to pass, then it's all the more reason why we need to, day by day, moment by moment, be relying on the loving influence of God. At all places, at all times, in all people, in our life, God is present as an influence to maximize the good, to minimize the evil. He's, he's closer, as we sang earlier in, in the worship service. He's always so, so close. He's holding us. He's squeezing us. He's closer to us than we are to ourselves. He's closer than the air that we breathe. He's not controlling you or all the other variables, but he's always influencing. And so we don't need to say because he doesn't control, he's not here. He's off at a, a distant uh, place or something like that. No, precisely because he doesn't control, he's always present as, uh, as an influencer. And so our job as kingdom people, on the first task, in the middle of the crap, is to say, God, I trust that you are here, getting your hands dirty in the mess. Help me to, A, see you. And so we look for his grace to break through in the darkest moments. And help me, B, to align my will with yours as we cooperate with him to, trans- to tra- transform the evil into the good. He doesn't, he doesn't will the crap in our life, but he uses it. It's, as someone once said, craft smells like crap, but it's good fertilizer. And he uses it to grow things in our life. And our job is to cooperate with God and him doing it. Romans 8, 28. Let's, uh, let's deal with a few questions. What do we got? What do we got on the board? Questions from Peter. Thank you, Peter. I get that Satan brings a lot of crap into the world and we are supposed to pray for God to take it away. But why do answers to prayer seem so arbitrary? Bingo. Uh, Shauna will handle that problem in two weeks. Won't you, Shauna? Are you going to just deal with that? Maybe. Well, she'll, well, she will touch on unanswered prayer, but I'll, I'll take a shot at it here. First, an advertisement. I, I, I have a book out there called Is God to Blame, which is all about that. Uh, and so you might want to pick that up if that's a, a burning question that you have. Uh, the the, the one-minute answer I'd give is this. We assume often that prayer is it's all up to God whether he answers prayer or not. We pray, and if God wants it, he goes, yeah. And if God doesn't want it, he goes, no. Because he's all-powerful, right? He gets what he wants. Go back to the discussion we had a little bit earlier. And, and the, the, the thing that's troubling is it's, it seems so arbitrary. So God's up there, and, and you're saying, oh, God, will you protect me from the rape? And God's either going, okay, I'll do that, or no, you know, I don't, I don't think I will. And that leads to the whole thing of why wouldn't, he do, why wouldn't he answer your prayer and protect you from the rape? He must want you to be raped. And now we're in that whole pit hole that we talked about earlier. I want to submit to you that, that prayer is not simply a matter of whether God wills it or not. The answer to prayer isn't simply a matter of whether God wills it or not. Nor is it simply a matter of whether you have enough faith or not. We talked about that in that Faith and Doubt series. 
Because uh, some people think, well, God wants to answer the prayer, but it, and if you have enough faith, it will be answered. So if it wasn't answered, it must be because you lack faith. I, I, I submit to you that, that it's, it's, it's a whole lot more complex than that. Uh, praying, praying is powerful and effective. James 5.16 says that. So always know that when you pray, you are sending out a kingdom ripple effects. That, that makes it, whether you can see it, uh, its effect or not, know, trust that it's powerful. It's moving the world in a kingdom direction. And the situation you're praying for, it's moving in the kingdom direction. But it doesn't automatically collapse all the other variables that affect what comes to pass. It doesn't mean that no one else has free will all of a sudden or that angels don't have free will and a bunch of other things. There's still a multitude of influences going on. And so sometimes you can pray about something and and God answers it, but the answer doesn't break through on this realm because of other interference, other ripple effects. The classic example of this is Daniel chapter 10, where Daniel prays, God sends an angel, because God usually works through mediaries, sends an angel in response to prayer, but the angel is detained 21 days because the prince of Persia, who is this demonic entity, interfered. Our free decisions can interfere with God's plan for people's life. Why do you think that angelic interference can't, can't do it? This is why sometimes prayers can be answered like this. Other times they've got to be uh, answered. You have to persist. You have to just keep on working at it, working at it. Sometimes one person praying is sufficient. Sometimes you need a thousand people praying because there's warfare involved and there's a multitude of variables involved. It looks arbitrary. But the reason it looks arbitrary is because we don't know all the other factors that go on to affecting what comes to pass. Okay, another question. Great, great, great question. From Mari. Is God there if you don't always feel his presence? Does he ever get mad at you and want to punish you if you don't go his way? Thank you, Mari, for, for that question. Two questions, really. Yeah, is God there if you don't feel his presence? So important for you to know that he is. Whether you feel God's presence or not depends on a lot of variables. <laughs> And it could be something as basic as what you ate the night before or the germ that you got infected with or it could be a mood. You know, what you feel at any given moment is largely and some would argue exhaustively chemical. It's the chemical combustions in your brain. Um, and, and, and so don't leverage anything on what you feel. Now, at the same time, I'm not saying feeling isn't important. I, I, I love to sense the presence of God. Uh, sometimes I do. Most of the time I don't, but I always know that he's there and I take that on faith and I envision that as I go throughout the day that I'm always, I'm like a fish swimming in the sea of God's presence. Right now, I'm a fish. You're a fish. We're all swimming in an ocean of God's love. He is right here. And, and it's so important to know that uh, and take it on faith if you don't sense it. So yes, he's present. He'll never leave you or forsake you. Does he get mad? Sure, he gets mad. You find that in the Bible, but his anger isn't like our anger. We get mad often for selfish and petty and self-serving reasons. God never does. If God is angry, it's an anger that expresses his love because God is love. And sometimes it's hard for us to to make this connection. Uh, He's always motivated by love. Always motivated by love. Now, does he punish you? Well, it depends on what you mean by punish. We often think of punishment as getting even. I'll make you pay for that. I don't think God does that. If God was doing that, we wouldn't need a cross now, would we? Uh, He's not about getting even, but he is always about teaching. And and so he does discipline. Hebrews 12 tells us that. And he'll use all the trials of life, all the struggles of life, all the crap of life to do it. He'll use anything that's available. doesn't mean he, he, he desires that or causes it, but now that it's there, he'll work with it. 
He'll work with it. And, and so he disciplines us. And sometimes, in fact, I would argue most of the time, uh, what we experience is simply God allowing us to experience the consequences of our own decisions in order to learn. Not, not to get even, not I told you so, or anything like that. He's always about redeeming us. Everything he does is with a redemptive mo- mo- motive. To grow us, to teach us, to, to expand us. Got time, I think, for one more. From Anonymous. So, we've... Yeah. Uh, so, we... I was just thinking, like, if you put Mike there, we probably still wouldn't know who you are. Or Joe, or Greg, you could put from Greg. Anyway, but, you know, but see, that, that wouldn't be honest. So this is, this is an honest way of being anonymous. So we've, we've been having serious crap coming like waves for over two years. Yeah. How do we deal with it if it doesn't end? We're really beat up and wasted. Uh, I, I hear you on that. I first want to say uh, that I, I completely empathize with that. Sometimes... Uh, you go through seasons where it feels relentless. Uh, the other night, uh, Shelly and I and some friends uh, were just talking about our experience as a group. And uh, I, I, I said, as more persistently than anybody else, that I'm just tired. Because uh, it's been one thing after another. Things that, on a, on a multitude of levels, physical, emotional, spiritual, relational, and it just it keeps coming and keeps coming and gets, it gets so tiring. Go, Uncle! Okay, you win! <laughs> Done! And, and it, it just gets tiring. It gets very, very tiring. Um, and so I get that. What if it doesn't end? All I can say is this, that... Um, I believe if, if, if it doesn't end, there could be a lot of reasons for that. But here's where you, you, you have to have a confidence in God's ability to pull you through it. And part of this, what I find is this, that when I get to a level of fatigue at the relentless, the relentless onslaught of things, and I do cheerleading in my head to keep it in perspective, whatever, but you get tired and it get, it's painful. And, and especially when it's, what's even worse than your own stuff is when you see someone else suffering and it doesn't go away. It just... It just breaks your heart. But it comes down to this. Either this is going to break you or you're victorious over it. I mean, this, this can break you. You can become cynical. You can become ornery. You can become miserable. Uh, you know, it, 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 that won't do the world any good and it won't do you any good. And certainly not kingdom. On the other hand, I, I believe that when I am weak, he is strong. And that's not just some kind of nice little cliche. I mean that. And, and when I, I now have to deal with this new level of relentless crap i have to deal with it's not way beyond all shucks and darn it this new level of it and that puts me in a position where i need god now more just to stay in a good mood i need god more than i did before which is a good thing it is a good thing i can no longer coast as much on my natural personality as i used to i've got this thing going on i'm just talking about one little aspect of this relentless thing it forces you to grow it forces you to grow and so in the midst of this even if it seems endless just always trust that God is present. God is there, not in a Neanderthal way, not in a Machiavellian way, but in a wisdom way and, and in, in, a, in an agape way. His influence is there, and, and he is strong enough to see you through this. He'll give you an energy that doesn't come from, from your own. He'll give you, if you're open to it, a wisdom that doesn't come from, 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 from yourself. And he'll use this to grow you, which doesn't mean give up and just sort of accept it. No, part of his wisdom may be showing you how you can minimize it and how you can grow around it. 
But as long as it's there, he can use it for kingdom purposes to grow you. And, and, and so just say, God, I, I'm putting myself in a position where I need you to, to make me bigger, to, to get me stronger, to, to rise above this. This thing will squash me if I rely on my own power. And I, and I don't want to become that. I don't want to become the kind of person who's just miserable. No. no. The kingdom says I can have a joy in all circumstances and a peace that passes understanding. Well, now it's cash time. It used to say that. It was so easy you know, before you had chronic pain or so easy before you had the relational issue. Now the storm comes. Now it's time to, eat, you know, the proof of the pudding is in the eating. Now, now let's, let's test this. Really? There's joy unspeakable, full of glory, peace that passes understanding. There really is. But it means you're probably going to have to be more reliant on God and dig down deeper than you ever have before and practice the presence of God and, and other things of that sort. From Ben. If the devil is behind evil and God is not, why did God create the devil? Brilliant question. My answer would be, that God did not create the devil. Wait. Never quote that out of context. God did create the one who became... Uh, okay, I think, I think... Is there someone back there supposed to get these? Uh, I'll, I'll hold on to it if I get time to get to it. God did create the one who became the devil. But he wasn't created the demonic one, the adversary, Satan. Uh, so far as we can discern from Scripture, he was created the bright morning star, Lucifer in Latin. Became his name Lucifer. God created Lucifer. And Lucifer created himself to be the devil. We, by our own decisions, uh, uh, form our character in one direction or another. Uh, and God's always influencing us to, to turn towards the good, turn towards light, and conform to our, 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 ourselves to his, his will. But we're free. And so we can resist that. And, and from what we can tell in Scripture, uh, God created Lucifer with his tremendous capacity to brilliantly manifest the, the glory of God. I had a lot of authority and a lot of power, but he also had freedom, because without that he would have been robotic. He, he, he wouldn't have been a, an agent who was capable of choosing love. And so far as we can tell, Lucifer and a myriad of other angels uh, chose to rebel against God, and now we have that to put up with. Uh, you might ask the question, why doesn't God just incinerate uh, the devil the moment he rebelled? Why, why just blow him away? But you could ask that about any agent who who eventually turns to be irrevocably evil. Uh, why does God let them uh, continue on? And my, what I, I would propose is this. If, if free will is the capacity to go this way or that way, okay, I'll see this analogy I can go. I can go towards God and agree with God to this degree, and I have this, this amount of say-so and this amount of power, then I have to be able to go this way uh, to this degree to this amount of power, and God can't revoke that. I use the word can't. It's not because he doesn't have the sheer power to. Of course he does. But the very meaning of free will is I can go this way or that way. And if God revokes my ability to go that way because he didn't like the way I chose, well, then he virtually is predestined me to go this way. And therefore, I don't have free will. By definition, God, if he gives free will, he can't just revoke it when he wants to. Now, there's always conditions and all sorts of other things around it. But the meaning of free will is you have the power to go this way to this degree or that way to that degree. And so the, the, the devil had the power to bless for this amount of time. And then also to curse for this amount of time. The good news is that it's finite and will come to an end. Next question. Uh, from Anonymous. If Scripture says God will only allow us to go through trials we can handle, how can we know for sure that it's not God who puts us through those, those, those trials? Excellent question. Uh, there's an there's a, a important distinction, I believe, that needs to be made between two things. One is, God allowing us to go through trials for a purpose and putting parameters around that. 
And on the other hand, God putting us through those trials. I can't say that God never puts us through trials. There may be times where he, 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 he says what you need right now is this and, and, and actually brings it upon us. But there's other times where I would say that, that God isn't at all. I have no reason to think that every trial we go through is, is a God-orchestrated one. Sometimes the trials we go through, maybe even usually the trials we go through, are our own doing. We bring them on ourselves. Now, God will be there. He'll always be, he'll be there as the power you can lean on and always influencing you to go in the right direction and all of that. So God is smart enough to anticipate any trial that you would ever go through. And he has a plan on how to turn it to your advantage and the kingdom advantage. If you will work with him, that's the promise there. But I don't need to say, think that God specifically set up uh, the trial uh, for you to, uh, to go through. And see, I say that with a passion because... Uh, sometimes the church has said some very nasty things uh, to people, and they had the best of intentions, but some of the stuff is just cruel. For example, last night I talked to a lady who had uh, her whose child died, and the pastor told her that perhaps the reason why God is sending her through this trial, why God took her child home, is because she had an inordinate love for her child. And that she loved her child more than God. And so God needed to remove the competition. It sounds like Al Capone. Yeah, I got to take out your kid. I don't want any. No, it's like, oh, what would that do to your picture of God if you believe that? No, here is a trial. The fallen world and it's oppressed and, and this kind of stuff happens. And God will use that. God will use that. Uh, to, to bring good out of evil, but, but I don't think that God is the one who's out there killing kids because you love them too much. Uh, that, 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 and that, that goes way back to St. Augustine. He, he, that suggestion is one he made 1,500 years ago. Okay, uh, next question. Really good questions, you guys. I love them. Where is God in self-inflicted crap? That's good. No, that's excellent. A lot of our crap is self-inflicted. Not all of it. Don't go thinking that what you get is what you deserve or anything like that. But, but let's be honest. We, 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 we do stuff. We make decisions that... Uh, uh, you know, are sometimes just plain stupid, plain damaging. We go down roads we know better, and we bring it on ourselves. Where is God? Where is God is right in the middle of it. Uh, in fact, really, all, all of the crap that has resulted of sin is, is, is human-inflicted and sometimes directly self-inflicted, but that's the exact thing he took upon himself on Calvary. He bore our sin on Calvary, which shows us that God is the kind of God who is in the middle of and even suffering because of our self-inflicted crap. He's not out there standing, looking at you, saying, well, look what you did. What a mess you made of your life. Man, you know, how many times did I tell you not to go that way? I told you not to marry that guy, and you did. I told you that if you didn't quit smoking, you're going to get lung cancer. I told you, I warned you, I sent all these things, and you still did it. You, you, you made your bed, you got to sleep in it. You know, no, it's not like that. There are sometimes natural consequences to behaviors that we do. That in this world, sometimes you just can't clean them up. You will suffer consequences for it. But God is there always on, on your side. Not, not necessarily making the road easier for you, but he wants to say, I'm, I'm here. I, he suffers with us, the Bible tells us. He'll never leave us or forsake us. And he's right in the middle of it, not to shame you, but to say, let's learn from this. And let's grow from this. And use this to purify your character and to correct things. Uh, you know, ask the question, how did you get into this mess? What choices did you make? Not to shame you, but just to educate you. So, 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 so you, you grow from it. So where is God in self-inflicted crap? He, he's where he's at with all crap, and that is right smack in the middle. 
Not in a Neanderthal way, controlling the thing, and not in a Machiavellian way, manipulating the thing, but he is there in a wise way, saying, work with me and I'll, I'll give you wisdom about this, how we can turn this around. It may not be pleasant, but, but it will be productive, and always there in an agape way, uh, bringing good out of evil, restoring us with his love. Got time for one more, or I'll read this one. You got one more up there? Sure, I'll read this one. I'm going to read this one. If we have great grief in our lives because of something that has happened to us, has God given us life so uh, the can win over, so he can win over our hearts in spite of this grief? Okay, if we have great grief in our lives, I got you there, because of something that has happened to us, or maybe what, something we did ourselves, has God given us life so he can win over our hearts in spite of this grief? Um, I, I wouldn't say that God has given us life so that he can win over his heart despite this grief. He's given us life so we can have life. And he's given us life so that we can eventually dance with him. This is what the kingdom's all about. This is what heaven's all about. He's given us life so we can share in his love, participate in his love, be mirrors of his love, dance in his glory. Uh, that was from the beginning the, uh, the goal. That was the purpose of everything. We, as a uh, race of people, brought the grief on ourselves, and we individually bring a grief on ourselves, and we bring grief on other people. So now, so now, to enjoy the life and, and eventually get the life that God wants us to have, He does have to win over our heart despite our grief. But I want us to notice that that wasn't necessarily the plan from the start. That's the plan given our fall and given our sin. There's going to be grief involved. And now the promise of God is that not only can He win over our hearts despite our grief, and the pain and the despondency that is sometimes there. But he'll even use that as a way of winning over our hearts, as a way of, of, uh, of, of, of growing us into uh, kingdom people. Everything. The thing about crab is that in, in the right hands, if you will, and, in, in, and with the person who's got wisdom power, it makes great fertilizer. And, and, and things grow in crap that, that uh, wouldn't grow otherwise. It smells terrible, but, but it's very fertile. And, and in, in some ways, that's what happens with the crap in our life. God can grow it. Now, again, again, don't think for a moment that that means that God wishes, wanted you to have it. And maybe the, that the crap that is there it makes him cry. And the grief and the pain. And he's on the inside of that pain. But what you can know is that it's not senseless, meaningless pain. It's pain that can grow things. And so our job is to offer up every part of our life, the good stuff, the bad stuff, the pleasant stuff, the painful stuff, and say, God, it all belongs to you. Use it and grow it and, and, and help us to, in the middle of it all, keep our eyes fixed on your beauty. Know who God is in the person of Jesus Christ. And that that God, the God who died for you, is the God who's in the middle of the craft, redeeming the moment, bringing about the healing, bringing about the restoration and the growth. Preparing us for the kingdom. From Sarah, for, what do you tell a non-believer about God's love when they've been through lots of trauma? Good. What I find is that uh, many times non-believers are non-believers because they have a Neanderthal view of God. And most of the time they got it from Christians. Or just from the general culture where we still refer to, I heard this yesterday, what happened in Japan as an act of God. Uh, and so when they go through trauma, they have, even if they're not part of the church, been somewhat conditioned just by the culture uh, to think that God must be pulling this. God is the, 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 the disaster maker. And so one of the first things you can do, whenever I meet a non-believer, uh, and I do frequently, it's not to try to convince them. I try to explain God on their terms. 
is first to, to uh, adjust or try to uh, talk about what picture of God are you rejecting? And usually the picture of God they're rejecting is one I would reject. And then it introduce them to another possible way of looking at God, and that is via the cross. You're going through trauma. Um, you know what? God knows what that's like because God did too. And you put him to Calvary. Always, I, I find most of the time the, the, the problems that people have with, with belief in God uh, and the inability to integrate with suffering is because they've got this Neanderthal picture of God. Point them to Jesus Christ. And change, it's a game changer. changes the discussion completely. Okay, another question. From Mike. What about passages in the Bible that seem to imply that God is the one behind the crap? Uh, next question. <laughs> I say, okay, this is a dissertation. This is always the dangerous thing because I'm writing the book on this, and so all of a sudden the whole book comes to the forefront, and then I get log jam. I had 12 years of speech therapy because I stutter because everything tries to come out at once. I had to learn how to slow down. And this is the kind of question that makes me stutter because like... <laughs> and then Charlie's up there saying, Greg, you've got two minutes and you just spent 20 seconds of it to explain why you're not going to give an adequate answer. <laughs> oh, yeah, but I, I would say this uh, in, in a nutshell. Some of the time, some of the time, God is behind the crowd. Uh, God's dealing with a situation where it's... it's uh, and not a question of, of uh, what's his ideal will, but there's so much crap going around. It's what version of the crap do you want? And so God's working in, like, you see this throughout the Old Testament. You've got these nations that are all sort of violent, whatever. There's just no chance of making them peaceful. They're going to be violent. So the only question is, is uh, how do you put that violence to a good use? And so God, in some sense, gets involved with that. Because if God wasn't going to get involved in violence, he wouldn't be involved in the world because the world is intrinsically violent. And so there's a way in which God lifts his hand. And then Assyria is allowed to do what he, they want to it to Israel. And God uses that to teach lessons and all these other sorts of things. Um, but God's not the one who made Assyria that way. Assyria already was that way. God's now just saying, well, then how can I, I work with that? But in a sense, God is not this, God's not this prissy God who's afraid of getting his manure on his hands. If he was, he'd never deal with us. No, no, he's, he's a guy who dives head, head in. Uh, and that's what the cross is all about. He takes it upon himself. Sometimes, in some of the portraits of God, I think that part of that is God acquiescing to the way people think about him. You find this in the book of Job and other places in the Bible where this is how people think about God. They do see God in more deterministic ways, and God works with them in that. But I would argue that if you look at the whole context of the canon, of the whole biblical narrative, you see God constantly revealing more of his true self, confronting their false images of him, and ultimately revealing his definitive, who he really is, in the person of Jesus Christ. The most important thing I'll say, and this is the last thing I can say, and I want to get to one more question, is this. It is, I think, absolutely crucial. As we, when, we, when we ask a question like that, more than the particular answers that we give, would be, how do we frame the question? And it's vital that we, as we now, who believe in Jesus, read the Bible, we do it with a Jesus lens on. You know, it says uh, that uh, John said to, or Jesus said to the Pharisees that if you really believed in the scripture, you'd believe in me because all of that scripture is about me. And then on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24, uh, as he's appearing to them after the resurrection, they're on the way. And uh, it says that then Jesus revealed to them all, how all scripture points to him. But they, had, they needed a revelation to see that. So when we read the Bible... We have to read it with this assumption. Somehow it all is there to point to Jesus. 
And we look at it through a Jesus lens. We now know who God really is in the person of Jesus Christ. And that reframes everything. Now, as we look back at the Old Testament, we've got to ask the question, knowing who God really is, what was going on when he appeared to be other than this? It's a little bit like some novels you might read or movies you might see, like, like The Sixth Sense, if you saw that movie, where the last ten seconds of the movie redefine the whole movie. Or, or what's that other one? Uh, 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 Book of Eli. Where the last ten seconds all of a sudden reframes the whole movie. So then you've got to go back and watch the whole movie again, because you didn't know that you know, ahead of time. And, uh, yeah. So here, the last chapter is Jesus Christ. And when Jesus shows up, it's like a detective novel where all of a sudden, boom, everything's redefined. I mean, everyone was surprised. There, they thought you could come and get a you know, kick, butt messiah, kick butt messiah who had just you know, beat up the Romans and blah, 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 blah. And instead he gets crucified. What? And that reframes everything. So we need to read the, the, all those passages through a Jesus lens. Got time for one more. From Anonymous. How would, that's all right, how would God instruct Israel to destroy a tribe, then tell them they could keep some of the virgins? Oh boy, come on. Is there a problem? Is there a problem? Okay, don't look at it. You find, this ties into to my previous question. I love this. This is good. This is, and by the way, you don't have to agree with me on this. Just chew on it. You find some laws in the Bible and some narratives in the Bible that look absolutely Neanderthal. This is one of them. Uh, show them no mercy. In fact, there's an inconsistency there because sometimes God says when, when he's sending them into Canaan, show them no mercy. Uh, slaughter them all, even the animals. Uh, but then, then you know, turns around and says, uh, uh, but you must not marry the virgins. Uh, no, no, you, you must not intermarry with them. But if you just slaughtered them all, why is that a question? And then in some passages it says, oh, but you can keep the virgins as spoil. <sighs> booty. More, more booty. Uh, I, I did not intend to double entendre there. I, <laughs> booty of war. What's it called? Spoils of war. Then they call it booty. How do I tell? See, this is why we stick to the notes. <laughs> no, Okay. So when I look back on that, here, here's the question. Okay, I, 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 if I'm honest here, I mean, and, and I, I just am so done with trying to convince myself of stuff and, you know, dancing around stuff. No, if I'm honest, I, I know who God is in the person of Jesus Christ. I have all these reasons for believing in Jesus. Then I find these passages that look absolutely contradictory to that. So then the, question, the ultimate question is, what's going to have more authority to tell me what God is really like? Some folks think you can read the Bible as sort of a flat book where every passage is equally authoritative. Though they're kidding themselves because no one does that, and I'm glad about it because otherwise you'd be acting on verses like that. No, no, we understand that there's there's a progress of revelation that that, that goes on here. And so I have to say, what is more weighty? Jesus said that John the Baptist had a a testimony that was weightier than all previous uh, uh, prophets, but that his testimony, Jesus' testimony, was weightier than John's. So not all things are equal. So the first thing to establish is where you're going to go to get your cues from God. I suggest you keep your eyes stick Jesus, on Jesus Christ. And now look back and try to figure this out from the perspective of Jesus. Now, there's a number of, of explanations people have tried to offer about this. All would agree, I think, or most would agree, that this is at, at least a matter of God acquiescing to a barbaric, primitive people. 
and, and buying and, and playing the roles that they, that they expect him to play because this is what it is to work with these people. If you want to be related to these people, you have to accept them on their terms in order to move them forward. And so God stoops, as I'm saying in this book that I'm writing now, The Crucifixion of the Warrior God. God condescends to stepping into the framework, the limited and fallen framework of his covenantal people. Because that's what you have to do if you're going to be relating to them. And then you gradually grow them in a certain direction. A little bit like this. Uh, there was a, a missionary couple that I knew of. I didn't know them personally, but I knew a person who knew them. Who was, uh, a number of years ago, in the, uh, a missionary to, to this tribe in Africa. Uh, unreached people group and very, um, uh, prim- I guess the word they use now is primordial. Uh, they, Indigenous population here. And they practice female circumcision, which is this brutal, unthinkably brutal, patriarchal practice of ensuring male rights over women. Um, this couple went to this tribe and they, they had to, for three years, participate in ceremonies surrounding female circumcision. Because you have to go native. You, you can't demand that they step into your world. You've got to step into that, their world. That's incarnational. If you were looking at that couple during those three years and didn't know anything else about them, you would think that they condone female circumcision. Maybe even celebrate female circumcision. They loathe every minute of it, but if you're ever going to grow that tribe out of female circumcision and do it for Christ-like reasons, well, you have to earn the right to be heard. You have to, you have to meet them at their level. They've been doing this for a thousand years. You can't come in as, oh, the great... Wonderful Westerners who are going to now liberate them. No, you you have to come down. It's incarnational. This is what God does. He's he's a missionary to earth. He has to step into our violence, step into our barbarism, step into all of that crap in order to grow us out of this. You find even God, sometimes it appears as though he's celebrating polygamy and celebrating concubines. He says to David, David, how could you have sex with Bathsheba? I gave you all these wives. I would have given you more if you wanted them. All these concubines. Now, we know from Genesis all the way through that God does not approve of polygamy. Now, he's, he's a monogamist. But there's times in some cultures and some places that, that polygamy is the lesser of evils. So God enters into it. He's not a prissy God. And so reading these, these passages from the perspective of, of Christ, we know what the missionaries really believe. And now we've got to go back and reinterpret all of their other behavior leading up to it. Appreciate the questions. Good questions. The ones we didn't get to, which is the majority of them, uh, they'll be on the table uh, on the website. Amen. Amen. I will close in prayer. I want to ask the prayer teams to come up here. And if you have any need whatsoever that you'd like to pray through, I encourage you to come up here and um, uh, pray with these folks. We'll continue this crappy series uh, next week. Uh, if you're not signed up for a small group, I encourage you to get involved in a small group and go through the material. You'll get a lot more out of it that way. So, Father, thank you for being a God who is bigger than all of our situations, all of our circumstances, all of our pain, all of our disappointment. And help us to be a people who keep our eyes fixed on Jesus Christ and and who rely on you to grow us through the crap. In Jesus' name we pray. And all of God's people said, God bless you guys. Go out and build a kingdom and love on people.